0: Uh, hello and welcome to another beautiful May edition of the Evolution Medicine Podcast. I am your host Joe Alcock, joined as always
1: by the remarkable Coffee Brown, sitting right next to me. And I'm Coffee Brown, and uh, it's like 85 degrees today, super bright and sunny. And since it's just been cool recently, I'm loving it.
0: Yeah, today really feels like the first day of summer. Yeah, it's uh, it's warm out there. It's definitely shorts, t-shirt weather. We're lucky, though, that we're here and not in Phoenix or
1: Dubai or Pakistan. I think
0: I know. When I was in Tucson, <laughs> we'd
1: go like, so I lived in Tucson for a long time. and We'd be like, oh, it's so hot. It's 110. It's 115. And the people from Phoenix would go, you called that hot? <laughs> right. But I think I read
0: recently that, <clears throat> that Pakistan documented the highest temperature for this time of year. It was 122 degrees Fahrenheit.
1: Well, here's an exciting piece of news. We uh, crossed the 400 mark for carbon. So it's looking like that beachfront property I bought in Arizona is going to pay off. Yeah, it just might. It just might. That water's coming up
0: pretty quick. Um, so yeah, that's a very depressing milestone to have passed. Nope. Scott Walker
1: says there's no climate change. Uh, While well, he was building berms against the flooding of Miami, he declared right. no climate change. It's going
0: to be interesting to see how their tune changes when, when they really do have to write off that you know, huge expanse of real estate.
1: If you can be sandbagging against floods and saying there's no climate change at the same time, at some point I have to admire that kind of a reality-shifting field. I mean, I would like to... I want to live in the world of my... I do live in the world of my imagination, but not that vividly.
0: Yeah. So I I was listening to a podcast recently. It was about uh, the energy transition to against... Or towards renewables, away uh-huh. from fossil fuels, and about the idea that there really is a there's a finite amount of resources on this planet. It makes sense, right? <laughs> there's a finite amount, and there was a and the, the interviewee was going on about how he was at a financial conference uh, with a, a speaker who was essentially arguing that there were no limits, that we would continue to find fossil fuels, and we were in effect in a limitless environment. And we find people mostly on the right end of the political spectrum that believe this and think it's actually true. Of course, it's complete nonsense, and then afterwards, the guy who was interviewed went up to the speaker and said, hey, we, we got our PhDs together. I know you know this is not true. How is it possible you can say this? Yes. And he said, you know, essentially this is what people want to hear, and this is what... Uh, what I'm, I get paid yeah, to say. This isn't right? what I'm paid to say, or that their, their think tank is funded to say. But the, the idea that they, can, they feel that they can get away with saying a, a falsehood, now this is in the pre-Trump era, that, this, that there's a strain of political thought that
1: feels that there's no problem with discarding science entirely. Right. Well, in fact, we have, um, we have some people who believe the world is 6,000 years old who want to take over uh, curriculum guidance in this very state right now as we speak. I didn't the know that. The PED, the Public Education Department, which last year tried to remove any references to climate change, uh, tried to create, as part of a science curriculum... Support for the oil and gas industry, and does not want any reference to a world older than six thousand years, which is going to make geology a lot simpler of a topic than it was in the past. By the way,
0: uh, yeah, that absolutely for sure. Uh, well, a say, topic since, even since, those we, since we have understand. already gone on, a, on a, rant. a terrific rant and tangent, which I am enjoying it by the way, um, I should point out to our dear listeners that we are going to eventually circle around and talk about oxygen which is something that is just measurable. Fine. Right? It's part of the atmosphere. It is not carbon dioxide. Uh, it is uh, an important element for life, certainly for mammalian life, and it's something that we pay attention to a lot in, uh, in medicine. But before we circle that, I want to I spend a little more time on this climate change and this education.
1: Well, part. consider this. Yeah. There are two possibilities vis-a-vis your friends lie. Uh-huh. One is that there's plenty of oil. We're never going to run out. In which case, we damn better find some alternative energy because the atmosphere cannot absorb that much carbon without killing us. Right. Or there's not plenty of oil we are going to run out, in which case we damn better come up with some alternative energy because oil is going to run out. Yeah. So whether there's plenty of oil or oil is finite, we need alternative energy.
0: Yeah, but I think that if you are an educated person, if you are versed in science, and if you're advocating for the unlimited burning of fossil fuels... You, there has to be a, a compartmentalization of the brain there in which you're rejecting things that you know to be true,
1: right? Will Rogers said it's hard to make a man see the truth when his paycheck depends on him not seeing the truth. Oh, that's for
0: sure. That's for sure. And the other, uh, you
1: know, <clears throat> Elon Musk,
0: perhaps in a, in a better piece of wisdom, said that given that things are going to run out, we should transition sooner rather than later, so we don't destroy the Earth before we make the transition, which S- makes makes a lot of sense. He said he said it more.
1: Uh, Adroitly than that. There's a model that, uh, there's an analogy that's actually pretty successful in the real world. When you bend a stick to break it, you know (coughs) that the further that stick bends, the more forcefully it's going to break. The later things break, the worse they break. While the physics are different, that actually seems to be true for real world problems.
0: True. My drinking problem is rearing its ugly head again. Yeah, I, uh, <laughs> I inhaled a little bit of the uh, green tea that you offered me. So, speaking Definitely of no, evolution, no, no.
1: <laughs> how did evolution decide we should put our breathing hole and our <laughs> drinking hole in the same place? What is up with that? You, certain, certain,
0: you certainly <laughs> shouldn't try to speak and breathe at the same time. Or at the and drink, other
1: end of us, we the solved the time. cloaca problem. We right. figured out we shouldn't pee and poop through the same hole, but yeah. we didn't figure out we shouldn't uh, drink and uh-huh. breathe through the same but hole. We put how those, did that we put those in close proximity, which yeah. has its
0: own set of problems, that is for sure. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so you know, I in general it, uh, favor the energy transition, uh, the energy Wende. I think is what they call it in uh, in Germany. And this move away from fossil fuels and towards uh, renewables. <clears throat> but not a little while ago, I realized that we have a little we have a little fossil fuel fired power plant in our house. So right, essentially in my fireplace. House. Yeah, well, it's not it's fireplace too. <clears throat> that's debatable whether that's a, a big problem. It certainly has some air quality water issues. Heater? Now we have a we have a, a furnace that burns natural gas and we have a water heater. They're they're co located in the same little area, little closet in between the kitchen and the living room, and that takes fossil fuels and burns it and makes heat and it does does various things in, in the house. It's not generating electricity, but it's it's you know, essentially burning fossil fuels to make our house comfortable. Um, well, we tore it out. We tore it out yesterday. Hmm. Furnace, furnace is gone. The gas-powered water heater is gone.
1: They're torn out. Would you replace <clears> <throat> them with a roof-based uh, solar? So we already had some. Hydro- solar plo- solar we had system. some
0: photovoltaics, and we installed uh, Air Source heat pumps, uh, mini splits, that are the equivalent of like a window air conditioner, except they're in two parts. They're attached by uh, you know condensate condensate lines. Um so you can run them to different places in your house, so we have that, and then I also uh, have a heat pump water heater nice, which well... <coughs> it runs on electricity but it's a it's a relatively uh, efficient way to uh use electricity to generate heat for water
1: I've been trying to get over the um activation energy to uh, convert our house mm-hmm. for a time. So you're nudging me in that direction. Presently, we use a small nuclear reactor, yeah. which is co-located with the bedroom so that it also doubles as birth control. Oh, there you go. And then why, you know, why bother with, uh, you know, you
0: don't have to save money for retirement or any of those things? <laughs> there you go, yeah. You know. <laughs> also it. our,
1: It's also our anti-poverty plan. We'll right. die before money runs out we should probably talk about another sacred cow, which is oxygen.
0: Okay.
1: Oxygen's good, so more's better, right? That's certainly what we often observe, right? So our theme today, uh, I'll just sort of, I'll tee it up here. Our theme today is, um, we probably are using oxygen in a lot of situations where it doesn't make sense. And there's a group of pathologies in medicine called ischemia, that occur when blood flow to an area is impeded, say, by a blood clot or narrowed arteries or something like that. And for low these many years, and it was my training as well, we give oxygen to people in the hopes that whatever blood makes it past this uh, sticking point, this blockage, will at least have more oxygen in it. Now, I have to say that it's been quite a while since I realized how foolish I had been to do that, but it was all of our training at one time, and many of us are still doing it. The fact is, oxygen, once blood is 100% saturated, you cannot put more on the hemoglobin, so if you may only get a little bit of blood past that blockage, but no more is in the hemoglobin. What about the plasma? Well, some oxygen is devo- dissolved in the plasma, the clear part of blood, and in the water within the red cells, but it's less than 2% of the total oxygen. So cranking up your blood, uh, the, the, what we're going to say the partial pressure of oxygen from that which would saturate your blood in the mid-90s to that which would take you up to 100%, has almost no benefit at all. You'd get just a handful of more oxygen molecules in a milliliter of blood that makes it past that obstruction. The cure for ischemia is perfusion, it is not oxygen. But oxygen is harmless right that's what people thought <laughs> right and that's but I think
0: people didn't think just that it was harmless that we thought it's good and, and and we and we still actually behave this way you know we pre-oxygenate people that are gonna undergo an airway procedure and we think that's good it probably is
1: I was gonna say mm-hmm. I still do
0: that we do that yeah. this is this is routine <clears throat> practice so we think, that why not just crank up the oxygen to prevent someone from having de- or desaturating and having their oxygen levels go down. Uh, we don't think about the harms of giving too much oxygen. Well, how could oxygen hurt us? I don't know. We need it, right? That's good for us. We right? also need glucose, if you think about it. And too much glucose is bad for you.
1: Well, quite a number of papers have come out in the last few years mm-hmm. that do show worse outcomes when we give oxygen too liberally. In fact, the new discussion is not is there such a thing as too liberally? I think we're past that bump in the road. Mm -hmm. The new question is how much is too liberally? But It does seem like there are poorer Mm -hmm. survivals uh, to discharge and poorer neurological outcomes when we're too free with oxygen. And honestly that's predictable. We know that oxygen produces things called free radicals in our blood, superoxide species which you can look up online and see lots of different ones. Some of them are a natural part of our metabolism and necessary for cell functions, but like everything else, too little is too little, too much is too much, just right is just right. This is not the only potential harm of oxygen, but it's an example.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, scuba divers, oftentimes we worry about oxygen toxicity. Um, It's not really a problem when you're breathing air but some scuba divers use something called enriched air or enriched oxygen tanks, or they call it nitrox, where we replace some of the nitrogen with oxygen. And the issue is if you go down too deep and you increase the uh, percentage of dissolved oxygen into your, into your blood, that you'll have a seizure. So it actually is sort of a neurostimulant. And of course, if you seize underwater, that's typically rapidly fatal. It's not, not a good idea. So seizures can result from too much oxygen.
1: And it also turns out that oxygen uh, at times can cause blood vessels to constrict. Blood vessels dilate when oxygen is low to try to bring more oxygen to an area. So it shouldn't shock us that they do the opposite when oxygen is high. They don't need to be as big because they're getting plenty of oxygen per minute.
0: Right. And if you have listened to Coffee and me and some of our debates, we have, we've, we've definitely kind of circled around this idea that uh, perhaps in medicine and maybe even in emergency medicine or critical care medicine that less is more, that doing fewer things or, or intervening less aggressively with our patients uh, might might be a good idea most or some of the time and oxygen might be one of those examples where at least for a lot of things that we do instead of just cranking up the oxygen or ventilating people uh, and putting them on 100% oxygen or just routinely giving people oxygen and feeling reassured when we see that 100% oxygen
1: saturation number on the monitor that we should really rethink some of these things. Yeah, so how much is too much? Well it depends on what you're treating. There are some things for which you really still want to turn that dial all the way open. Carbon monoxide poisoning would be an example. That's right. Um, And
0: if you are it's probably a good idea. We can even take advantage of some of that dissolved oxygen in the blood if someone is actively hemorrhaging. It's, it's possible that uh, giving them oxygen might, might be useful under that circumstance. But you know, for a couple of things that we see a
1: lot, and I, I could be wrong about that one. <laughs> um, well, here's, I'm speculating here, yeah. by the way. I should tell you I have no data for what yeah. I'm about to say. But in the case mm-hmm. of someone who loses a lot of red blood and we place it with uh-huh. a lot of clear saline or lactated ringers. What's bad? then that 2% that we can dissolve into it, since we now have a larger volume of stuff that isn't hemoglobin, that 2% might be more significant in that setting than it would otherwise be. But it's not going to be a lot more significant even in a best-case scenario.
0: Right. And of course I interject that it's bad because of uh, a bunch of studies dated in 1994 that show that giving lots and lots of clear saline or crystalloid or lactated, lactated ringers in patients who, are, who have have uncontrolled bleeding uh, has, has been linked with uh, increased mortality.
1: It's my sense that very few of us are doing that anymore, that if we if we think there's been significant blood loss, we go right to um, uh, massive transfusion protocols. Uh, those may have their own surprises in store for us. Yeah. But I think what we're doing now is a little more sophisticated than replacing red stuff with clear stuff like we used to do.
0: That's right. There was a, I don't know if it's a famous study, but there's a study that uh, people that were into scuba diving and hyperbaric medicine, which is very oxygen centric a lot of times, uh, the study was done, uh, the author's heart, H A R T, and he took pigs or piglets and bled them down to nothing. So they had essentially zero red cells. And One before, of my
1: old professors did some of these. Yeah, uh, studies, Replaced yeah.
0: replaced their blood with crystalloid. And then put them in a hyperbaric chamber and put the, gave them 100% oxygen at, at three atmospheres. And as long as the pigs were maintained in their hyperbaric chamber, they survived. And I think that they could actually take them out put them back in the chamber for a, f- a period of time. So it certainly delayed their death.
1: <laughs> in those studies, though, what yeah. they were looking at was can you mm-hmm. keep them alive for a little while with no red cells? The answer yeah. yes. Does it do them any harm? Well, they didn't actually look at that. They didn't think to look at that in the studies I'm thinking of, at Uh least. And so they didn't look for damage by uh, superoxide species Mm -hmm. or vasoconstrictive problems or uh, alterations in um, oxyhemoglobin desaturation curve uh, or uh, interference with the carbon dioxide drive. There are a number of other things they might have looked at that may have uh, made them less to use a pun, sanguine, about their results.
0: Right, but when I, when I learned about this, it was definitely in the context of oxygen is good. Look at all the amazing things that oxygen, oxygen can do, and maybe we should indeed give people hyperbaric oxygen, 100% oxygen under pressure, and give people a really super therapeutic amount of oxygen to treat all kinds of things. And you mentioned carbon monoxide poisoning. Uh, people have considered Uh, For Jehovah's Witnesses who are unwilling or unable to uh, receive blood transfusion, that that they could be kept alive. Lesser of two
1: evils in that case.
0: They could be kept alive with hyperbaric oxygen. And then there's another work uh, by a guy by the name of Stephen Tom, this is T-H-O-M, who showed that giving these very high amounts of oxygen dialed back the immune response so that it prevented, under certain circumstances, uh, it prevented neutrophils, immune cells, from latching onto little receptors on the inside of blood vessels and then uh, eliciting an inflammatory response. So this is something that we see with ischemia reperfusion. So ischemia reperfusion is when, um, suppose you have a stroke or even a heart attack, Uh, part of your body is deprived completely of oxygen for a long time. Um, when When the flow is restored, inflammation goes haywire and we think, this is how we used to think about this, and the blood clotting would happen, and and actually things get worse, and, and the oxygen oxygen radicals uh, get get produced in in abundance. But uh, but this guy uh, Stephen Tom showed that if, in, under hyperbaric conditions, you could actually reduce some of that damage from ischemia reperfusion.
1: Some kinds of wound healing, and I'm pretty sure graphs are on this list, and I'm guessing transplants, maybe, Compromised flaps. Seem to benefit from topical hyperoxia, Mm -hmm. that is to say, uh, hyperoxygenation of the wound area. Here, we're talking about systemic respiratory hyperoxygenation, in terms of the overuse that our clan Mm -hmm. tends to put uh, people through, but localized hyperoxia does seem to have had some beneficial outcomes. Although, again, they weren't looking for some of these other toxic effects of oxygen although oxygen has been known to be a poison since the 1800s sure everything is water is a poison if you (laughs) take it to
0: excess so that's that's a useful lesson but the I bring up some of these hyperbaric examples because they were influential to me early in my medical training and I certainly came at this whole area thinking that oxygen is good hyperbaric oxygen is probably good maybe it's even underutilized Maybe we should use more of it. And really from an evolutionary perspective, maybe oxygen is simply a constraint that our body simply under certain circumstances can't get enough of it. So this is an area where we can really do a lot of benefit as physicians by giving oxygen. And this is certainly true. I mean, giving oxygen is is, uh, of supreme importance for someone whose lungs are failing or someone who's in congestive heart failure or a variety of different things. A lot of respiratory diseases, they certainly do better if we give them oxygen. But like you said, maybe maybe uh, up to a certain point. And then
1: we sh- maybe we shouldn't try to restore them back to 100%. So there's a class of vitamins called antioxidants, vitamin E, vitamin C would be examples, that uh, people often think they need more of. We know that oxidation is one of the uh, contributors to many aspects of the aging process. It's not really the case that more is better. Our body generally produces antioxidants in the amounts that we need. Um, As I said before, we need some free oxygen, uh, some uh, superoxide species. Where I'm going with this is, are you aware of any studies in which people have combined supplemental oxygen with antioxidants in an effort to get more of the good and less of the bad?
0: No, I don't know of that.
1: I, I don't know of any either. I, I'm, I'd, I'd just, I'm just
0: picturing then. Michael Jackson, who had, like, I think he had a oxygen chamber, personal oxygen yeah. chamber. <laughs> and I'm sure he was taking antioxidants at the same time.
1: Well, I remember oxygen bars on Central here in town several right. years ago. They, they've been gone for a while. And honestly, I don't know that I'd want to make oxygen at, like, a prescription drug. I don't know that that's even workable. But I probably wouldn't have licensed such bars because our, the toxicity was known by that time. like I say, since the 1800s.
0: Right. I think that the people that use oxygen bars at, uh, say, fancy clubs and that sort of thing, they're, they're, they're doing themselves a disservice.
1: So now here's something I have done, and maybe now I would rethink this. It turns out that for a particular horrific kind of a headache called um, cluster headaches, right. it seems that people improve faster if you give them oxygen so far as I know I don't have clusters but I do have migraines and I would occasionally go in and snort oxygen for a while while I was on duty to help me in an effort to help me function I doubt it ever did anything good or bad I could never stand there and sniff it long enough you know I'd like get five or six breaths and I'm off to the next room right so I didn't learn anything I probably didn't hurt anything or help anything but where I'm going is I have given oxygen to people with cluster headaches and sometimes to people with migraines and it seems to help but would the help outweigh the harm? Well, how much harm is there? It turns out that even fairly short periods of superoxygenation do have measurable impacts on uh, outcomes.
0: Yeah. So, where this really hit home, I think, for me, is that it used to be standard of care for patients coming in, clutching their chest, that we were worried about having a heart attack. We we even had an acronym for it. It was called MONA. Uh And the MONA... The M is morphine, of course, of course, opioids have their own set of problems and have recently been criticized in heart attacks. And the O in Mona is oxygen. Uh, we would just routinely put these people on oxygen. If part of their heart's not getting enough blood flow and oxygen, what could be the harm of giving them oxygen, right? So that's what we did. That was the idea that drove this.
1: And the same reason he went for strokes, by the way. Yeah, so strokes, But in both cases, thing. without perfusion, it doesn't matter. Here's how I would liken it. Imagine you're locked in a bank vault. You're going to run out of air and suffocate. Uh So they put 100% oxygen in the room next door to the bank vault. You're like, thank you, that's not helping me. Meanwhile, everybody in the other room is getting poisoned by the excess oxygen. So they drill a keyhole through the bank vault door. Now you're getting a keyhole's worth of oxygen while everybody on the other side of the door is being poisoned by excess oxygen. It's not the solution. You need to open the friggin' door.
0: Right, and, and you should, <laughs> and perhaps you don't need the oxygen at all.
1: It's not, it's doing nothing. Yeah. A keyhole's worth of oxygen is not going to save you in the bank
0: vault. You're going right. to die. So this, this paper the, that really caught my attention, this is back in 2015, published in the journal Circulation. The paper was had an acronym, which was AVOID, the AVOID Im- investigators.
1: And I actually don't not know. Not that they were biased going into this yeah. or anything.
0: I don't know what the... Uh, I know what the A and the V and the O are. That's air versus it's oxygen. It in
1: here somewhere. So, but I'm not sure what the ID
0: is. Maybe, it's, maybe this is just the investigation. I was looking at that a little earlier. Yeah.
1: So let me find it for you while you keep going. So this is a big deal.
0: So it, it kind of upended everything that we knew. We knew that we should give oxygen. When I did my uh, the board examination and the patient, the patient would come in, if we didn't start an IV and give them oxygen, we'd be... <laughs> Penalized and maybe wouldn't even become board certified in, in emergency medicine if we didn't get, didn't give them the oxygen. This paper comes out and it says, hey, they looked at they looked at patients who were actually having an ST elevation heart attack. So this is the worst kind, where a large chunk of the myocardium, oh. where the heart muscles, the D
1: in myocardial was the avoid, oh, that's the D the D and the avoid, yeah, because right. I saw it written <laughs> out somewhere and okay. capitalized. Keep going.
0: Well, that's silly. Well, this paper a, was a randomized control trial in which they gave air versus oxygen. Of course, it probably wasn't blinded, so it suffers from that potential source of bias. But unlike what we thought we knew, they found that the patients getting oxygen, in fact, did worse. And you're right, this was not the first trial. There was a bunch of previous smaller trials that hinted at this. And this has not been the last trial. People have continued to to study uh, giving oxygen for patients with myocardial infarction. And the signal, seems pretty strong right now, so that we've changed the, our tune, we've changed our treatment. And we don't typically give people oxygen if they're coming in with a heart attack, unless they also have some lung problem or their lungs are full of fluid and they're just simply not getting enough ox- anywhere near enough oxygen.
1: Sometimes we learn something new in medicine and it's initially so counterintuitive that the burden of proof is pretty high. Like for example, um, why not to use uh, bicarbonate in patients who are acidotic. It's itself an interesting topic, but the point is it's very counterintuitive why that's a bad idea. So we really needed a lot of uh, evidence before that became a mainstream understanding. The thing that kills me about this is that any first-year medical student should have realized it was pointless to give oxygen to ischemic events. Well, I you, I think that you you have an,
0: uh, a pretty plausible hypothesis for why too much oxygen might be bad. This keyhole the idea, and that might that might be it, um, but I'm not 100 percent sure we know exactly what what the mechanism. Well, is. And I
1: don't mean to imply yeah. that's the only mechanism. It's just low hanging fruit to look right. at the superoxide species. Yeah,
0: it, it makes sense. So, along <coughs> with that ischemia reperfusion injury I was talking about, so even if you do restore flow, there are tremendous amounts of of uh, superoxides that get liberated, uh, and that causes damage to the Inside of the blood vessel, and a lot of these microvessels actually collapse afterwards. So even after you restore flow, it doesn't necessarily solve the problem. Uh, this ischemia-reperfusion um, injury is is a, is a real real issue. So that's why we have to hammer these uh, these folks with um, a whole variety of medications, platelets, uh, platelet inhibitors, aspirin, you know, he- blood thinners like heparin, in patients that are getting uh, heart attacks. And, of course, the thing that's going to work the best is if those blood vessels are mechanically opened. Um, But a lot of things are happening at the microvasculature in which, like you mentioned, excessive oxygen might be a bad idea.
1: Uh, Incidentally, a slight tangent here, but in terms of the underlying reasoning, uh, science is often accused of being reductionist. Uh, I was taught, the first thing they told me in, in biology was, If you find a new species, drop it in a wearing blender. That would be the reductionist approach. We do want to look at all the little parts and pieces and subparticles. is one aspect of science, and that is called analysis, which literally means cutting apart. But that's followed by synthesis, where you put the bits back together to see how they work in synergy with each other. And ultimately, where the rubber meets the road is outcome-based trials. And so um, what analysis can give us, that is the so-called reductionist approach of science, is hypotheses. And things often seem to make logical sense. This seems like it would be a good thing to try. It seems like it's likely to help patients. We should do that homework before we try stuff out on patients. But in the end, we always need these outcome-based trials to answer important questions.
0: Yeah, I I, I agree with you 100%. I want to circle back to something that you said. Which is that sometimes you know, evidence can be staring us in the face, but if we're not, if <laughs> yeah. not prepared to receive it, yes, we don't take the lesson. <laughs> and this is something that we've talked about on this podcast. We talked about it with regard to kind of evolutionary ideas that if we have, if our, if the conventional wisdom regarding something like oxygen, in, in, sorry, oxygen good in heart attacks because oxygen not getting to that heart muscle, we must must give more oxygen. The simplistic view of pathophysiology, which is ingrained in medical students and in uh, paramedics and emergency physicians, it's very hard to overturn that. Uh, this, uh, this is a, a paper, this is a collection that I participated with. Uh, the author is Chip Gresham, he's a medical toxicologist and emergency physician in uh, Auckland, New Zealand, and he cited this paper published in 1950. Yeah. Which Jama published an article. It was titled "100% Oxygen in the Treatment of Acute Myocardial Infarction," and they showed that 100% oxygen was associated with longer duration EKG findings of ischemia. And there was a whole series of papers after this, and a Cochrane review published in 2010, well before this Avoid trial, mm-hmm. uh, that really gave a hint that, that what we were doing actually was misguided. But people couldn't they couldn't get past it. Like, but the, the myocardium's dying because it's not getting blood flow and oxygen. We must restore it.
1: Right, because it's not getting blood flow and oxygen. And so we focused on the part that was easy to go after, but it's the blood flow is the, the part that's actually amenable to treatment. That's right. Well, the reason I was laughing at the way that we can get hypnotized by these uh, sort of simplistic approaches or by received wisdom is because even though we're talking about this, and even though I feel like an idiot for not seeing through this the first time I heard this story, we're not immune to it. It really is how human brains work. And I have huge respect for the docs who train me and the docs I work with. I feel very fortunate to be a part of this community. But these cognitive biases, we talked about those in another yeah. podcast, are really, really uh, significant obstacles to our higher understanding and we have to be on guard against them all the time. So the, the one person I'll be least kind to about this is myself because I can afford to be. And yeah, it scares the crap out of me to know that even though I understand a process like this, I still fall for this trick, you know?
0: Well, there's a lot, there's obviously a lot to learn. And uh, I think that the trap that we should try to avoid are, are some of these simplistic ways of thinking about disease Mm -hmm. that, yeah, that essentially we love the idea in medicine that things are, are there's that are, I'll call it a deficiency condition or a deficiency syndrome because we think that we, if we just solve the deficiency, then we make people better. That was sort of one of the easier strategies in
1: medicine if you think right. about it. Yeah. So
0: if someone, we think that a tissue is not getting enough oxygen, mm-hmm. we can give more oxygen. If menopause is a you know, hormone deficiency disease, then we give estrogen, oops, turns out it causes other problems, you know, cancer, heart attacks, that sort of thing. Um, if You know, we talked about when uh, someone is deficient in fluid, if they're bleeding, we think that we can give them fluid, just crystalloid and make them better. turns out that's not the case. So this this is an area where I think that idea, the simple idea, is generally wrong. It's usually wrong. We'll talk about, you know, say, even vitamin D deficiency, which we diagnose all the time. We think we can just make people better by giving
1: them vitamin D. It turns out that's probably not true either. Well, vitamin D deficiency is a funny one because we actually have no idea what constitutes a deficiency. What we really do is compare them to averages. In fact, a lot of things we call abnormals are just variances from average, if you think about it. The way normal labs are defined, some of them, we actually know the functional parameters. Like, we know how much is too little or too much potassium for most people. But a lot of what we call normal labs is just the ones that 95% of the population fit between. Yeah, and a theme which I've talked about on this podcast is that
0: when we, during critical illness, sometimes we should probably reject the normal values for a healthy person. And there may be some disease-specific values that are actually beneficial. And we've we've uh, touched on a few of these things. It may, listen, it may be the case that your heart, during a heart attack, not that this is a normal condition or a something that, that is advisable in any way, but it might be the case that you're, you're better off with tissues that have less than normal oxygenation that's possible for some of these these, these the tissues in the penumbra uh, penumbra which is the, the little the little uh, umbrella of damaged tissues but not not you know past the point of no return Again I'm, I'm spitballing here and I'm speculating but that is if you look at the avoid trial this randomized controlled trial in which they looked at uh, they had 638 Patients, 441 of them, had confirmed ST elevation MIs. The ones given liberal oxygen had a larger infarct size and had more evidence of heart damage um, at six months. So So I'm
1: going to pause on that penumbra thing for a second, if I may. Uh Uh, Some of the people who listen to your podcast may not be physicians or may be early in their training. When a myocardial infarction occurs, when part of the heart is killed during a heart attack, and ST elevation means part of the heart has been killed it's not like there's a sharp dividing line between dead tissue and healthy tissue there's an area of tissue which is getting some spillover from other uh, vessels but it's far away from the other vessels so it's it's tenuous and it's at risk so there's generally an area that's just uh, has been killed is actually dead from loss of perfusion And then an area around it which is at great risk, some of which will probably be lost, but some of which is salvageable. And then an area out beyond that uh, that's healthy tissue being perfused by other vessels. And so we call that in-between area the penumbra or the watershed area. Again, this uh, same structure applies when we're talking about strokes as well. So watershed areas and penumbras, for those of you who are training in medicine, are important concepts to understand well.
0: Yeah, so I was speculating that, that unlike the conventional wisdom, which is that we need to deliver as much oxygen as possible to the penumbra, it may actually be beneficial in terms of healing and mortality to let those tissues be a little bit more on the hypoxic side. And I think that the avoid trial uh, supports that that view. This is, this is not the conventional wisdom. This is kind of against what we're trained to look for and what we're trained to do. So there's the reason why before you jump in here. The reason why we're having this conversation is because uh, one, we talked about oxygen last time. This does touch on themes that we've talked about during previous podcasts and I'll refer you to those. But there was a paper that just came out. This is in April 2018. One of the authors is Paul Young. Uh, He's from Wellington in New Zealand. Uh, He is a remarkable uh, intensivist and clinician scientist who's responsible for now over a hundred peer-reviewed papers, many of which uh, really look at some of the bedrock assumptions of what we do. Uh, he is now performing this, the trials called the what's well, called the i call it the, IQROX, the I, I-C-U-R-O-X trial where they are randomizing a thousand ICU patients to a liberal oxygen regime or a conservative oxygen regime where they let their oxygenation go down below what has been considered. I'm actually surprised serious.
1: he got that through IRB, considering the amount of data we have now on this. Well, there still remains some uncertainty really? about
0: what, what are the levels that we should be aiming for. And mm-hmm. I think one, one thing that I, I think most people predict that he's going to find that the patients in the uh, liberal group are going to do worse. And that is what we, that's what he showed in this uh, meta-analysis. This is published in The Lancet 2018. This is a systematic review called the IOTA Systematic Review. IOTA stands for Improving Oxygen Therapy in Acute Illness. You can't do a trial without giving it a fancy name,
1: apparently. Although this one is not a trial, it's a it's meta a, review. It's a meta I was surprised that they gave it one of these fancy overwrought acronyms when it's not even a trial. Right. But it does I do make a it l- easier to talk a about. A lot of the stuff that comes out of New Zealand I've been pretty happy with. So. Yeah, they're, they're
0: doing great Not stuff. Not going to pick
1: on New Zealanders, just picking on this. So. so 25 randomized
0: controlled trials. So now we're moving away from just looking at heart attacks. They, th- these trials enrolled over 16,000 patients. They looked at sepsis. They looked at critical illness. They looked at stroke. They looked at trauma. In other words, quite a
1: wide range of people we give oxygen to.
0: Cardiac arrest, emergency surgery.
1: And these are not all ischemic events. Right. And why would it be bad to give a trauma victim uh, oxygen? Don't most of them get oxygen Mm -hmm. on the way in? Yeah, they all do. In the the rig, right? Well, they don't now, actually. We have have evolved. That's good. At least here in in New Mexico, we've outgrown that, finally. That's good.
0: So, looking at an outcome which is not a squishy outcome, but a, but a hard outcome, that is whether you live or die, So mortality, the thing that we care about the most in medicine, and maybe just as human beings on this planet, the risk of death was increased by giving a liberal oxygen strategy. So the, in, in all these trials, if you combine all of them, and you look at the group of patients that were randomized to giving lots of oxygen, or more oxygen, and you compare them to the ones that were given less, the relative risk of mortality was significantly higher in the patients that got, got yeah. I oxygen. actually freaked when I saw the relative risk; it was way higher. So it's it's one point two one. So yeah.
1: Well, and there's another part here where they yeah. actually give it much higher. That might be
0: for disability, uh, but let's check. We're doing a quick review here, taking a look at this article. So there was a number they had in here that was. Uh, but we'll keep going. Could, while yeah, I but find kudos kudos to, to Paul Young for doing this. He really has shown, he and his group.
1: 96% increased mortality in hospital. Yeah, that's nuts. So that, you know, when you say a relative risk of 1.21, it doesn't sound that high, but a 96% increase. No, way. I'm not sure about that. I think that's the saturation of oxygen across trials, was 96%. Oh, a level of 96 increased the mortality. All right, I see the sentence structure threw me off there. It's a, it's a
0: right. sentence structure issue. Got it, okay. If, they, if the liberal oxygen strategy resulted in 96% oxygen as measured by saturation of peripheral oxygen, SPO2, but this is not we wouldn't, we wouldn't blink if we saw a patient with 96%.
1: No, we do that no, all the time. We do
0: it all the time. Even I still do that. All How the time? could that be a problem? In fact, we're probably at that right now. Probably. That increased in-hospital in mortality with a relative risk of 1.21. So they were 1.21 times higher risk of death in hospital if they got the liberal amount of uh, oxygen. But so they, right now
1: I'm 97% more a mile above sea level. Let's check me.
0: So we're using a little pulse oximeter right now. Push the button. There it goes. Well, mine's not registering at all. So maybe I'm not oxygenating at all. Ah. That's why my mind is so much quicker. 98%. Oh, I'm in the danger zone. That's right. So this, Bad outcome the, for everybody. I,
1: the IOTA trial. How are we doing that a mile above
0: sea level? <laughs> Neither of us is breathing hard. Okay. Supplemental oxygen is unfavorable among a SpO2 range of 94 to 96% in hospital. And the results, according to the authors, support the conservative administration of oxygen therapy. So, yeah, so I'm, uh, I'm, I'm in the danger zone.
1: Yeah, I don't think it's saying that um, 93 to 96% sat is harmful. It's saying it's harmful to give oxygen to people in that range, yeah. and uh, and that would be consistent with what we're doing right now. So this is something I may actually change, Joe, uh, based on this conversation. I'm not sure yet. I've been telling my guys, yeah. titrate to 94 to 99%. Keep okay. it under 100%. Because once it hits 100, you don't know how far above it you are. Well, that's but true. you're definitely super-oxygenating them. <clears throat> so I don't want to see the number go above 99. But I noticed that in the meta-analysis, they actually would have had it cut off more like 97. Uh, I'm a little uncomfortable with yeah, that, these, partly because you and I are already at those numbers, and partly yeah. because 97 is a harder number to titrate to. It's so exact. It's such a narrow right. range at that point. And so
0: hopefully the, the ICU-ROX... <laughs> ICU I'm not sure how we pronounce that. The, the randomized trial that, that Paul Young and his group is doing right now with 1,000 patients, randomized. This, that bulk, that will shed, shed some light on or this. Right. <laughs> we don't know, though. Even one thing that I, I, I will probably ping Paul Young on, on Twitter is the question of well, even with their, with their study done at sea level, <laughs> it's not going to inform what we should do here at altitude. Well, presumably, our patients can tolerate it even lower. Oxygen level. now
1: that's an interesting you question. Think? on the one hand, you could say we're adapted to a lower normal sat, and right. therefore when we're treating, we should aim for a lower normal sat, or you could argue we're operating closer to hypoxia and we should be titrated to the same levels we would titrate to at sea level. For example, we know that endurance athletes often have lower pulses. I'm not an endurance athlete, certainly not compared to you, but mine is in the forties, not rarely. That doesn't mean. I wouldn't faint if I get down to 28. I still would pass out. They live closer to the pulse rate at which they're gonna lose consciousness.
0: It is remarkable what, what we can tolerate doing different things. So you mentioned like an extreme athletic event that, that can influence you know, the oxygenation. When your muscles are offloading oxygen as fast as they possibly can, it's gonna affect the amount of circulating oxygen in your blood. But we, we see this not uncommonly at all in people at, at very high altitude people that are functional, walking around, talking with oxygen sats that are in the 70s or 80s. Whereas if we saw that in the emergency room, we'd be rushing them. So I the don't know which way unit. our chronic
1: adaptation pushes us. I can think yeah. of a logical case in both directions.
0: Right, so we're, here we are, this is equipoise again. So even, <laughs> so what we're, what we're saying is, there's gonna be another study that's gonna to have to be done after this one to look at what we should be doing at mm-hmm. altitude. Mm-hmm. We don't know.
1: That's right, it that is what yeah. we're gonna to have to do. Well, uh what about mountain climbers? They uh presumably get people with injuries and illnesses and things and they administer oxygen too. Has anybody looked at whether normalizing their sats or simply making them less abnormal turns out to be the better strategy?
0: Well, since so many, you know, so many uh climbers and mountaineers suffer problems that at their root cause really is hypoxemia, mm-hmm. then uh, giving oxygen is, is sort of a routine thing that, that's done for them. Yeah, but all Does the way
1: that? to 96 or 97%. I, yeah, I
0: wonder how, how often they, they, are, they are completely
1: normalized. Mm-hmm. That would be another subset that would be interesting to look at. I, mm-hmm. agree. I think you could yeah. get data fast and relatively quickly in that group. Right. This is a group we know are physiologically optimum until whatever happens on the mountain trip happens. Right.
0: And then we could look at Sherpas and people in the Himalayan Plateau.
1: Although we know that they're genetically adapted, right. see our recent podcast with Kate Rusk on uh, Twitch TV on uh, Twitch TV.
0: Yeah, so it's on the Twitch, the platform Twitch,
1: Twitch, and the channel. Oh, Inertia, inertia, inertia TV. TV. Inertia TV.
0: So I haven't released that one on the podcast, but I will. I'll release that one after I release this episode, for sure, because it was a good one.
1: So a whole bunch of questions come up here. When should we use oxygen? Mm-hmm. Why do new understandings diffuse more slowly than we like to imagine in medicine? And how conservative should we be when new ideas come down the pike? Because I don't think we should follow every new idea.
0: It's a it's a tough question. I think I agree. We especially if, if there's a finding which doesn't go in line with previous work, most, most people would, would not recommend changing therapy based on a single study. But it really depends on the study. And if it's, if it's a, a single centered, if it's a single trial done in a single place, then the chance of bias is actually very, very high. If it's a single trial that's done in, in a center with lots of different locations, then the, the quality of the evidence is going to be better. But even there, a lot of times we're not going to change our mind. Until a, a big meta-analysis comes out like this one, mm-hmm. the one that, this IOTA trial, or IOTA. Although I have to analysis. say, this
1: is a, this one is a pretty convincing meta-analysis.
0: It is, yeah. Um, so we know that yeah, we know that giving more oxygen is worse in general. For, for the conditions that they looked at in this in this meta-analysis, the Paul Young's randomized control trial that he's doing now with a thousand patients will tell us more about what thresholds we should really be aiming for. Uh, That's going to be be worth looking at. But again, I, I get back to this idea that we have a certain hubris in medicine, and we think we know disease in our body better than we actually do.
1: For a second, I'm going to pitch for the other team. All right. Because I don't want to make the mistake of avoiding one mistake by going too far toward the other side. There's a famous book by Thomas Kuhn called *The Structure of Scientific Revolutions*. Mm-hmm. I highly recommend it. Although I recommend his initial 750-word essay. The book is 750 pages and says the exact same thing. So, look is at the it essay.
0: 750?
1: Something the like that. Structure of yeah. scientific revolutions. Yeah, it's pretty huge.
0: I've got. I have the paperback version. It's not that horrible. Maybe that's the shorter. Anyway, version. <laughs> I, I felt like the essay covered
1: the same ground as the book. Yeah. Um, the book was requested after the essay. Mm. The point being, it's widely interpreted as having said, um, new ideas in science struggle too hard. In fact, it's often abbreviated as, science progresses one death at a time. Uh, The idea is that entrenched...
0: The investigators, the researchers, are the ones who have to die.
1: (laughs) Right, the the entrenched uh, investigators and researchers, it's hard for them to say, Yeah, maybe that idea that I got my uh, chair for is obsolete. That it's time for a new idea. That what I thought wasn't correct or or wasn't, uh, it's more fully developed now. It's changed enough now that that we should rethink it and so on. Um, I actually believe that the new idea should be the one that has to work uphill. And my warrant is this. The old idea was once new. It had to prove itself against skepticism It had to survive a certain test of time and practicality. And the assumption would be that it's done its homework already. If the new kid on the block comes along and says, Nope, that idea is obsolete. Here's the new idea. Then it makes sense to me that the burden of proof is on the new kid, because otherwise we can wind up chasing every shiny concept that shows up on the sidewalk and never get to work. Uh, So I don't think it's wrong that there's a degree of conservatism in science I think it's wrong when that conservatism, it's one of those things you can overshoot on. You're always going to miss the mark a little bit. You're either going to be an early adapter or a late adapter. You're never going to adapt exactly at the right moment. It's just, you'd have to be super lucky for that. You can't do it by judgment. And so in general, should we err on the side of early adopting or late adopting? And I would say that as a, as a person in the world, as an individual, I tend to be an early adopter of new ideas and philosophies and technologies, but in medicine I'm a somewhat late adopter, not super late, but I definitely want to see some empirical evidence before I change my practice. Uh, thoughts about that?
0: Well, I think that part of what you're saying is exactly right, and if, if, if someone comes and says something which is, goes against the grain of what we have learned and the bulk of, of knowledge, uh, then it's an it's, it's an extraordinary claim, and so, as as you say, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence, and they might that 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 evidence might need to be repeated several times before we really believe it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but stuff like this, if we go back to this Jim article from 1950, that was a long time. ago. Yeah, the before. thing about this one is it's face palm obvious. Yeah,
1: it's not a great example of when we should be conservative. So I, so we, I would have to say.
0: I I and here's an example where I think that. We have this idea of a deficiency or of an abnormality that we can easily mm-hmm. fix, and we overlook the potential harms of what we do, and that that's actually a bigger problem oftentimes in, in taking care of both acutely and chronically ill patients so th- this fits very nicely in my worldview, <laughs> I have to
1: say so I, I should say that sometimes Joe and I talk about a slightly different threshold in, in the idea of Do we do too much? Uh, It's a matter of degree, not qualitative, because I couldn't agree more. We often, we do definitely err on the side of treatment and aggression, and a big part of that is because we really want to treat stuff. We don't want to say, well, let's wait and see how they do. Let's just let nature take its course here. Let's see how his body handles it. That feels too passive. Uh, to many physicians, I think.
0: Right, and, and maybe... Although
1: it can be really good advice. <laughs> maybe
0: particularly so in emergency medicine and uh-huh. care, that where all of the currents seem to go in the opposite direction. And even the people whose advice we value tend to be the interventionalists and the people who get paid more. So the I'm, interventionalists.
1: I'm going to say one of my heroes is Scott Weingart, but he was, I would say, at the very aggressive end of the spectrum.
0: Yeah, and I, and I would actually advocate, so he, one of his credos is, or maxims, is the most aggressive care everywhere, or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that we should be aiming for the opposite, so the, the least aggressive care everywhere. It's, and what I try to teach my trainees is, what are the downsides of doing this intervention, and have we really thought this through? So it's really more of a thinking man's or thinking woman's process before we leap in you know, head first.
1: So this is uh, a good example of what I mean when I say we absolutely do agree. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things I teach my students to say before every treatment, I expect this benefit, I recognize that potential harm, and if the harm of this treatment materializes, Here's what I'm going to do about it. Before they start any treatment, they have to say those three things to me.
0: That's great. Yeah. And it's a, it's a useful thing even for a, someone mid-career or late
1: Absolutely. Career. It's, still right. what I, it's a habit of thought for me as well in my own head. It's, so it's not something... It, I definitely do what I preach in this regard. Right. You know? And I believe competence doesn't mean you never get caught by these uh, negative consequences. It means that you're always prepared for them. So you you do an LP and you get some blood back instead of CSF, you just calmly ask for a Band-Aid, move up a level and retry. You don't freak out, you don't panic, you're not upset, nothing bad has happened, you know just what to do for it. You know. Yeah, <laughs> I agree. You give somebody penicillin, they have an allergic reaction. Okay, a minute ago I was administering penicillin, now I'm treating anaphylaxis. I know how to do that, I'm not gonna freak out. I was prepared for that before I gave the penicillin."
0: So that is a sort of a posture about what we think is best when it comes to treating our patients. You are know, trying to bring this back to evolution. The I, We have the benefit now of hindsight. We can look back to all these studies that date back to 1950, looking at giving what might now be Obvious are excessive amounts of oxygen, and we can compare that you know, with give, giving less. But the lesson here is, I think, that, that our bodies have not evolved to deal with supplemental oxygen. Sometimes, in the right setting, the supplemental oxygen truly is a constraint. Our bodies are simply unable to unload enough oxygen, just in general, to, to preserve life and health. So if, if, you're, if our lungs are full of fluid, if we have a pneumothorax, or if we have certain toxicological things, like carbon monoxide poisoning, then oxygen really is going to be life, life-saving. But in these, these more corner cases, where we are, our, our posture really has been that there's nothing wrong with 100% oxygen, and we should crank the oxygen all the way up, that, that is a, that's a condition in which we've not evolved to deal with. So this really is a mismatch between what our bodies have evolved to expect when it comes to both health and disease, and what we're actually doing in the real world when we're, when we're treating our patients. And to the extent that there's a discordance there, that, that's, a, that's one way of looking at why giving too much oxygen is, is a bad idea. This is, that's sort of the overarching you know, view of, of what's wrong here. Then we can kind of drive, drill down and figure out, well, what exactly is happening? Is it an issue of superoxides and free radicals? That is almost certainly part of, part of the answer as far as the mechanism goes.
1: From a, so t- staying on the evolutionary thread here, we know that the the tissue in general has evolved responses. There are changes that happen at a metabolic and cellular and signaling level within tissues when they're ischemic that enable them to better tolerate that ischemia. Um, that's probably one of the reasons reperfusion injury occurs. Actually, we have seen this in cardiac events, and in fact. Some people are playing around with the idea of rotating tourniquets and stuff to try to stimulate this ischemic response Mm. when people have a cardiac event. The idea is to make the myocardiocytes, to put them into the mode that resists ischemia better. It could be that we sabotage that when we give oxygen. Uh, Arguing the other way, and here's where these speculative, these logical cases uh, can can be confusing. I'm not sure evolution gives a damn what happens to us by the time we're old enough to have cardiac events. I mean, I don't think evolution has really had much occasion to try to rescue us from cardiac events in, because we've generally reproduced by then.
0: Uh, but I think that there's, there's at least, there's some hints with the way that our hearts and our bodies work that suggest that the opposite is true. That we can actually, I mean, I agree with you. So the, 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 <laughs> at a certain level, with the idea that certainly evolution doesn't care really what happens to you after the age of 90, for instance, or 100. <laughs> that if, if none of our ancestors lived to that age, then, then a physiology or a mechanism or a gene that's active at those, at those ages is unlikely to impact one's fitness in any way. So that, that's certainly true. And we do know that, that natural selection Favors and has stronger effects at younger age groups, so that, that's certainly true. So some of the stuff that we're talking about here, things like strokes and heart attacks, that that may have actually fallen into this idea of a selection shadow. That, that selection would have been blind to these things because most reproduction. I happens. like that
1: selection shadow. I haven't heard that term, but that's perfect.
0: That, that's uh, it's not my phrase. I'd have to look up and see who coined it. Uh, but it's it's one of the ideas that, that explains something about the evolution of aging mm-hmm. and why it is that. Um, well, that natural selection does seem to have a uh, higher order or and is more impactful at early ages than than, than older
1: ones. Yeah, I wish my students would stop mm. greeting me with, are you still here?
0: All right. <laughs> <laughs> but you're having a you're, you're having a positive impact on, on their careers and their incomes and their fitness.
1: <laughs> so hopefully they appreciate
0: you. And not, you're not that old, by the way. <laughs> These are I,
1: oh. yeah, but I can't wait fifteen years to come back and make that joke.
0: <laughs> Precisely. Um, but I was going to say one one thing about the heart. Uh, if you just look at the pacemaker and the fact that if you blast out uh, the sinoatrial node, which is responsible, I hope for your heart rhythm right now and, and your uh, your heart rate. If that gets um, obliterated for some reason, then your AV node takes over at a at a at a lower rate. And if that gets obliterated, well, then your ventricles will um, beat at a at a lower rate. So there's this, there's this hierarchy of pacemakers, and it seems to me this is good evidence It's a pretty robust fallback system. It's a robust fallback system. Mm-hmm. So that implies that, you
1: know, our ancestors had pacemaker problems and survived them. Also, the heart is one of the few places where arteries and anastomose. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, people who have had chronic heart disease survive a big clot, a big blood vessel blockage, better than people who have healthy hearts. And the reason is they've built more collateral vessels.
0: So, yeah, so... That the fact that our, the body can have these, these plastic responses and adapt to disease, even at pretty advanced ages, suggests to me that our ancestors suffered some of these problems and some of them survived. Some of Concrete. them helped, some of them reproduced, some of them helped their offspring reproduce and had, a, had an impact on fitness. That, that's the take home that I take away from that.
1: Yeah, evolution has actually dealt with the selection shadow better than we might have predicted. Yeah,
0: so I think it's so part of it. The shadow may not be quite as uh,
1: impenetrable. Not so as, deep as of an umbra f- as we thought, uh, eh? That's right, yeah. Well, you know, Scotty of Star Trek uh, had his last child when he was 80. Ah. Didn't hang around to see the kid grow up, I'm afraid. Uh, I'd have to go back and uh, <laughs>
0: check that one out. Well, good. So maybe this is a good, good place to, to end it. There's, there's much more to say about this.
1: Uh, well, as always, I've learned a little bit more from you today than I knew before, and I look forward to doing it again.
0: Yeah, well, fantastic. Uh, good conversation. Happy May, everybody. Uh, we'll we'll uh, release a few of the episodes that we've recorded on Inertia TV with Kate Rusk, and hopefully we'll get back to that sometime soon. Signing off. Until next time.